This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast. And today I'm at, uh, at Mark Toussaint, who's uh, a speaker in our summer school. Um, and Mark, um, as a physicist, has been presenting his, his, his important work in the domain of machine learning. Um, so Mark, you started your presentation with like a little test for your audience, where you showed them a few equations and you want to check out who, recognize, who in the audience would recognize these equations. So why, mm -hmm. why were these equations so important to you? Well, first, just to check like what kind of background people have. Um, I, I'm not so sure if they are so important, but I think it, it, they are important um, to eventually understand, you know, what the point is of these formulations that I presented, and to sort of understand that you know the uh, the third equation on that slide is something that we can get out of these new formulations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and actually, I think you looked a bit disappointed because it was not a large group of people who immediately jumped up like, yes, I know this one. Hmm? So, Yeah, there is something. Um, uh, I mean, reinforcement learning is a very, very basic model of how behavior could be organized and how behavior could be organized in a way that is goal-directed. Mm -hmm. And um, although, you know, there is many, many questions whether this helps you understanding the brain, of course, there's many questions, but still this should not, um, I don't know, free you of knowing these things. Mm. I think it would be good to teach them, yeah. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> now, what you initially um, emphasized were your, your methods for, let's say, to understand planning as a form of inference. Yeah. So why do you think that that's a useful way to, to think about uh, planning? Mm, first, it's an, it's an alternative way to think about planning, which is... A good thing in itself. Uh, I think, you know, um, turning over problems and looking at the same problems from different perspectives is important. I think uh, the perspective of lo looking at planning from the perspective of planning, you know, offers different, you know, uh, options of how to um, think about a computation that actually realizes planning. So uh, more concretely about why planning is inference, I think it does... Uh, it does allow you to be creative to use other kinds of um, computational algorithms that exploit different types of structures. To be more concrete, uh, if you think about how to do planning on factor representations, well, you c one way of thinking, the more classical one, would be to have structured representations of the value function. But it will ever be always be the value function, right? Whereas if you if you roll out that process and sort of um, formalize it as the, the whole model as a graphical model and show that inference in a graphical model can solve planning problems, uh, it really leads to different types of algorithms and different types of um, you know, approximations that you could use to solve mm -hmm. planning. But would that mean you really have removed the value function from, from the story, or you have redefined it? Um, it th that's also very um, interesting. That, that's a good question. So I have removed it in the computational algorithm itself so that the algorithm does not have to ex have explicitly a representation of the value function in its memory or uh, the computer doesn't have to. Um, but in some cases, uh, in particular on normal Markov decision processes, um, the algorithm will compute things which are one-to-one uh, -to, -one to the value function. So for instance, on normal Markov decision processes, the backward messages, uh, it's getting technical, but uh, they, if you sort of collapse them, they are equivalent to the value function. Mm -hmm. But, again, now all of this is only true on, on a normal Markov decision process. If you go to problems, the actually interesting problems, where uh, you cannot do exact inference or exact value iteration, uh, like in PomDPs or other kind of factored things, um, the, the, the messages do not anymore correspond to um, value functions. They really correspond to probabilistic posteriors. Um, and it would be unclear how to do the same things that it could do with inference, how you could do the same things with value functions. Mm -hmm. Right. So in that sense, also if you go to the, to the, the Bellman equation view, which yeah. would be more dominated by a value function, yeah. um, then for you this is also, let's say, a contrast, right? You say, okay, that's one way to look at, at planning, Yes. and you want to look at alternative models to solve it, that might be more simple, or are they just different formulations of the Bellman view? Um, 
they are different. Um, I think they're different to the Bellman view. So the Bellman view is really um, a backward. The Bellman equation is a backward thinking. So if you have already solved a small problem, you can sort of backward iterate and sort of move your horizon backward uh, and you know solve the larger problem and so forth. Um, so in the, in the Bellman view, it, it, it's not very symmetric. It doesn't think about, for instance, forward messages or forward information. The inference view does. It computes both forward mm -hmm. and backward messages. And, and the result is then a product of both of these being the posterior. Um, so I think it is a different view than the Bellman view. Mm -hmm. yes. But I could argue that I might, let's say, describe your inference-based um, approach in terms of, of a Bellman equation. I can show an equivalence, or is there really something missing? Um, I I don't think that the that the computational things that are happening during message passing uh, you could describe as um, being doing you know being a form of Bellman equation. Mm -hmm. So computationally, the, the the things that are being computed and the kind of messages that are being computed are uh, different. As a result, they will also solve somewhat different problems. Well, uh, they lend to different approximations. Mm -hmm. For instance, as I said, in a POMDP, um, uh, well, in POMDP, sometimes you can do exact inference as well. Uh, but if you if you do ma message passing, uh, you can cope differently with large problems or with factor problems as you could do with um, trying to approximate value functions and mm -hmm. iterate over them. Right. So now you mentioned that that's sort of introductory remarks, but you mentioned that on the one hand you found problem solving um, from the perspective of inference theoretically interesting, but also you said, look, it can give us an, a handle on a more large scale integration and possibly on some form of multidisciplinary and uh, multidisciplinary interaction. Right. So what what's the perspective there exactly? Hmm. So the I think. Generally, actually, probabilistic modeling and also graphical models, uh, there's two things about them. So, so some people say they're great tools because they work good. But another thing about to say about them would be um, they, they're nice because they offer one nice language that can be applied on many different disciplines. So graphical models can be used in linguistics, in, in uh, robotics, for inference, for whatever. Um, it's, it's a bit of a similar thing that I wanted to state uh, with planning as inference. Um, the first point to make is that it's one language uh, that allows you to talk coherently about both uh, decision-making, um, doing perceptual inference, sensor processing, um, well, also planning, so not only immediate decision-making, but also planning, in, in one coherent set of concepts. And it's actually a rather small set of concepts, just inference, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is good for communication between disciplines. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's really one point. And um, as I said, one example of that is uh, that having this, this, you know, these concepts that you can show that they explain planning or and other things allows to build bridges between disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, there is neuroscientists, and I don't have an own opinion, but there is neuroscientists who uh, like to argue that uh, neurocomputation can be abstracted as functionally doing something as, as Bayesian inference. Mm -hmm. Or to say it even weaker, that um, neurosystems could at least also realize something as Bayesian inference. Mm -hmm. But that is an interesting statement, because if now um, in other fields we can show that uh, Bayesian inference uh, can solve planning problems, we immediately have a hypothesis of, of how neurosystems could solve uh, planning mm -hmm. problems. But is it also a goal for your own, in your own work? Is that I, um, I wouldn't really say so. So uh, uh, particularly in the last years, more and more I uh, became more and more of a roboticist, really. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so, in a positive sense, yes, I am inspired, and I'm inspired by the questions of how actual systems, like uh, the brain, uh, can solve uh, problems of goal-directed behavior, manipulation, all of these things. But um, it's, it, yeah, it would be too much to, to say that, uh, that, that I myself uh, see myself as a researcher, like a brain mm -hmm. researcher. Right. Okay. So then, um, let, let, let's say the. The approach that you have uh, great confidence in at this point in time is what you call stochastic optimal control, uh, which is a problem definition, not an, mm -hmm. an approach. Yeah. So, but why why do you think this is a, an important set of problems then to deal with? Mm. Um, yeah, and that's again a, a good question. So, um, let me say what I, I guess many people would 
other people would say, right? Um, the, the stochastic optimal control is a problem definition, similar to Markov decision process uh, with reward. And it's a very general one. People like when things are being formulated general and problems being formulated general uh, and allows to sort of, you know, describe all kinds of planning problems in there. Um, and it's, uh, well, of course, accepted within the control theory itself. And it's quite a lot of work on within machine learning in terms of Markov decision process. Mm -hmm. um, let me put it the other way. If I would not have shown and embedded my theory to be um, important or useful for solving um, MDPs and optimal control, I could have not invinced the whole control theory mm -hmm. community or machine learning community that it's worth anything. Okay. Right. So how how did you then uh, solve this problem? Uh, solve which problem? Well, in, in, uh, stochastic optimal control. Right. So you were saying, look, you 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 try to show that your framework is applicable in in that domain. So exactly. so in that sense, I guess you want to have an impact that sort of also delineates your proposal from others. So what what are the unique features of what you proposed in in that context? Why did it work better, or why was it more appreciated than than alternatives? Right. Um, I mean, one of the I mean achievements, I think, is a theoretical achievement in the sense that we could show that many, many other algorithms, which themselves have, you know, proven also, um, I mean, empirically that they work well, uh, that there are special cases of the formulation that we have. So this is a purely theoretical statement, right? Uh, algorithms 1 to 10 are special cases of the mm -hmm. framework. Right. And algorithms 1 to 10 had done some effort, fortunately for us, already to show that they're computationally okay. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is that we could also derive one algorithm, uh, which is the model free reinforcement learning um, uh, algorithm, that that I find conceptually quite interesting and in that, that we could also, you know, directly compare to other arguments. Mm -hmm. well, if we now first look at the, the first part of this argument, we yeah. say, well, we had the most fundamental uh, formulation of, of a solution to, yeah. to these, this set of problems. What are the key ingredients of that solution? I'd say that the key ingredients um, have already form previously been formulated by by people like Kappen and, and Opera and so, um, the, the key ingredients is uh, to think about optimal control as, you know, um, you know formally it's a carbon Leibler minimization problem, um, but matching two different distributions, the one being the controlled one and the other one being the uncontrolled but conditioned one. So the, these key ideas um, yeah, have previously actually already been been formulated mm -hmm. and uh, I must say it's also not I mean you could even go back and, and talk about Kalman duality in, in general um, even Kalman already like like said that the problems of control and the problems of filtering like state estimation or Bayesian filters are very similar mm -hmm. right and what Bert Kappen did before us and, and we now also do um, just explicates that exactly that relation mm -hmm. and makes it explicit now, uh, the, the difference in the formulation is really that uh, we're talking about uh, processes over state control and, and not really making any assumptions about the dynamics um, or control costs or, or uh, uh, noise in the process. Uh, whereas the previous formulations, they, they discuss processes on, on, the, on the state mm -hmm. and for that reason had to do some special assumptions to actually you know, get the theory Mm -hmm. properly. So yeah, you, in some sense, you had a more reduced formulation of the, of the problem. You just left out a certain number of aspects that you saw as being irrelevant, really, to mm, the You solution. could put it like this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So now, how, how should I imagine the solution that, that you came up with for these kinds of problems? How, how does this problem solver really operate? Um, I'm, I think most concretely, well, uh, well, you could imagine it... Um, you know, in terms of that policy that I described, uh, which is uh, actually described by Boltzmann energy. So um, you actually have a policy which is represented via Boltzmann energy, uh, which is not really any assumption about the policy because any conditional distribution can be represented as a Boltzmann uh, distribution. Um, well, and then the you know the iterative solutions that we proposed um, translate to iterative updates of that Boltzmann energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so concretely, I, I should say that these um, iterative equations are 
actually equations which perform that Kabel-Gleibler minimization that originally the theory proposes should be done. Um, so these updates of the Boltzmann energy are concretely uh, the argument that has to be implemented eventually. Mm -hmm. Right, but now basically it means I have, I have a, a set of policies mm -hmm. over which I want to optimize, right? They, mm -hmm. they all have their own level, their, their Boltzmann energy attached to it, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're going to update these iteratively. So that means that you are sampling from some set of states that might describe your, the task that this policy has to be applied to. So to, to, mm -hmm. to get this iterative function to work reliably, what should be the properties of the states I'm sampling over? Can it just follow any distribution or should it be very regular? Mm -hmm. um, so first I wouldn't say that we have a set of policies, but just you know, one but being described by, by a, a distribution. Um, in, in the exact like update um, where we assume we have a model, uh, we update that uh, Boltzmann energy over the whole space of points. So the whole function uh, we update over all for all x for all states. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that is the model-based case uh, or you know the stochastic optimal control uh, case where we assume to have a model. Um, I think what you refer to is when you ask, but oh, for which states do I update it or what, which states do I have to sample? Um, this is the model-free case, right, mm -hmm. where the system really has to interact with an environment. Um, well, in that case, um, the system would have to unroll uh, episodes of experience with the environment. Mm -hmm. And these episodes of experience give you, you know, samples from the process. And uh, you can use these samples of the process, you know, as a standard, uh, also with TD and Q-learning and so forth, um, to do the necessary update of the Boltzmann energy in a stochastic way. Mm -hmm. So with a learning rate alpha instead of doing the exact update of the energy. Okay. But then, uh, so, so the point is, well, what I'm looking for, what, what are the boundaries on that solution, right? So, so to, 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 to the, not only to formulate the solution, but then to prove that it actually will work and converge, you do have to make assumptions about the space in which this algorithm operates, mm. right? So what, what would be these limiting factors? Mm. Let, me, let me think. The first one is uh, we only consider observable environments. Mm -hmm. So there is no partial observability in what we discussed. Um, and I wouldn't really know yet uh, you know, how it would transfer to partially observable environments. Um, a second thing, I think, um, in terms of the... Um, wh when we can do these updates exactly, um, I think we proved convergence uh, without any further assumptions, right? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, these, these iterates, they converge, we prove convergence without further assumptions. But um, this is true if the updates are exact. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, of the energy. Uh, so how in, under what circumstances can it be exact? It can be exact if the state and, and control space is discrete because then we can represent the energy just as tables over discrete states and, and, and actions. Um, in that case, it will converge, no assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, if the state uh, space is uh, continuous or otherwise um, yeah, has to be encoded more compactly. Um, the convergence is, well, more difficult. If in the continuous case, actually, the, the dynamics is so simple, for instance, just linear and quadratic costs, um, then you uh, can just make a quadratic assumption about that energy, and it's almost like uh, the Riccati equations and so, so forth. You can do the updates uh, exactly, and again, um, it will work. Um, if the dynamics is nonlinear, well, you would have to use a function approximation to represent that energy. Mm -hmm. And at that point, exactly, um, we lose that, that strict convergence uh, mm -hmm. proof. Right. Okay. And can only hope, really, mm -hmm. um, as, as so often with reinforcement learning under function approximation. Right. So then the other thing, uh, sorry, if you want a, a trick that you applied in this approach, that you, in some sense, let's say, completely fragmented your, your value function. Right, mm -hmm. because uh, you now added a, a variable to your system that was locally linked to every state. Mm -hmm. um, that was is not a reward function that relates to that state. And um, if I understood it correctly, <coughs> these reward functions do have to satisfy certain regularities for for the system to operate correctly, or or not. What what what's the price you pay by distributing your value function in this way? Mm. I'm not sure. I, I mean, these reward functions, uh, we didn't really put assumptions mm -hmm. on them. Right. Um, 
except perhaps for a convergence that they are bounded, mm -hmm. right. um, as also for Q-learning. So uh, to prove convergence of Q-learning, you would have assumed that they're bounded, but otherwise there's not really... Re mm -hmm. No, but but the point was that, in some sense, uh, you also contrasting again with this Bellman perspective, yep. Yep. where you would have an explicitly defined value function, right? In this case, you have a more implicitly defined, it seems, value function, or mm. not. I wouldn't call it value function. We have we have the rewards and we have the Boltzmann distribution. Mm. Well, but, nothing but, more. but but you could argue that that in iterating these distributed value states you are approximating something like a value function. Um, in iterating uh, the update of the Bellman, yeah. uh, mm. not the, sorry, the, the, the Boltzmann, Boltzmann energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so... Um, so what I'm after is just to say that you, you seem to draw a distinction between a value-based approach and your approach where you say it's, it's not value-based in some sense well, well, I'm, well I'm saying well but m maybe implicitly you are value based because but now you just have sort of hidden it more by, by sort of distributing putting a distributor in the system linked to every single state yeah 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 um, uh, so first uh, yes the, the relations um, in the end become uh, very close uh, I'll elaborate in a second um, um, but the distinction is not so much between or I didn't meant to initially distinguish between a value based approach and our approach but more like uh, an approach which computes value functions by iterating back the Bellman equation versus by computing other things um, um, in terms of probabilistic inference, right? Mm -hmm. So okay. um, the Boltzmann energies are eventually computed minimizing couple club letter divergencies. Mm -hmm. Fine. Um, in the model-free case, um, I derived that one equation like that, uh, the model-free reinforcement learning uh, equation. And you can analyze the fixed-point properties of that equation. I should emphasize it's the fixed point properties, right? It's not the the transient um, of the learning process itself. In that fixed point, um, this Boltzmann energy has very interesting properties. Mm -hmm. Set for non-optimal actions, it goes to minus infinity, making these actions very improbable to be chosen mm -hmm. uh, in terms of action selection. Um, for the other ones, it turns out in the fixed point, uh, for optimal actions, it corresponds to the optimal value function, mm -hmm. the Boltzmann energy, uh, which is surprising, but it's actually um, a simple outcome of you know um, analyzing the fixed point equation of right. the update. Mm. But now the other thing that, that was interesting in the approach you described is that by you very strongly relied on the inference component, also with respect to sort of looking at the consequences of, of future states that the system might anticipate onto its priors, mm -hmm. right? That you sort of, as you described yourself, it's as if you just imagine a future goal and then suddenly you, you just pretend actually you've achieved it. You look at the consequences that has on, on the system. Mm -hmm. um, so w what's that dynamic exactly? And why did you, did you approach it in these terms? Hmm... I mean, um, don't quite understand what you mean by dynamic. I mean, it's mm. it's a bit like uh, well, it's, it's it's dynamic because I have to now imagine a future state. Yeah, I may now include it in my priors, so and now I can make decisions on on that basis. So I can propagate myself now to f future new events, right? And I can go through that same loop again. Right. So you imagine future events um, as being as happening, right? You condition on them and compute a posterior. Um, and in the, in, the, in the last framework, yeah, you do iterate by using that posterior again as a prior mm -hmm. um, and, and condition that again on the, on, the, on the same future event and again compute a posterior. Um, right, I mean... Uh, this but do you consider that problematic or not? I don't... Um, Algorithmic-wise, I don't see why it's problematic. Do you, do you mean problematic in terms of interpreting... How I don't know living systems are doing it. Or well, from from uh, to me, it seems that this works because you have conditioned it on a very specific definition of of the problem domain, right? So, for instance, that I can only have single goals uh, existing at any one point in time, as an example. Oh hmm, no! Why not? No, no. You can you can arbitrarily condition your future. There can be many. Uh, there can uh, the, the future can be represented in a factored way. There can be you can have goals in different representations at different points in times. No, but wait. And you might have if you now propagate that back into your priors. You might have uh, let's say un unexpected conflicts between these goals that you do have to resolve now in some way. Um, 
So inference and graphical models. If there is if there is evidences in the graphical model which are inconsistent, mm -hmm. um, you know the likelihood is just zero of that of the thing, and the messages diverge, mm -hmm. and that might in in fact happen, and that mm -hmm. happens in graphical models. Uh, if there is like um, almost deterministic dependencies, and mm -hmm. you get these really inconsistencies. Um, so th that's the case when you condition on variables which are uh, observations which are totally inconsistent. Mm -hmm. um, if if they are, if there is a, a chance, the slightest chance of consistency, mm -hmm. inference will exactly, um, you know, generate a compromise. Mm -hmm. That's 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 the point of it, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah, if you have deterministic models of our future and we condition on too many things, it will diverge in sense. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, it just behaves as inference and graphical models. Right. But then, uh, so in, in some sense, that means I, I just get points in, in, in my in this graph structure that um, have have lost their validity. I will just not consider them anymore and I rely on others then to make my decision. Um, don't know. So, I mean, inference and graphical models wouldn't really do that, right? It would find a compromise in a probabilistic sense. Mm -hmm. um, right. the other, another constraint I was worried about is just time. Yeah. Like, for instance, if, if you also mentioned that you have an interest in, in, in mapping this to robotics, mm. and if you deal with robots, the key thing is real world, real time. So, for instance, um, goal setting might also evolve over different uh, time windows. Right, mm -hmm. or I might get, let's say, goal interrupts because the world interferes with my own ideal planning world. Absolutely, yeah. yeah? So, yeah. so I and I was wondering how that, how your solution would would take these kinds of of let's call them exceptions into account, or how it would how robust it would be in the face of that. Hmm. So we we don't. I um, don't know if you have so much experience. Um, certainly, we used uh, that planning as inference method in for uh, for models that are related to relational reinforcement learning. I didn't talk about this yet. Um, uh, and these are like relational um, models uh, on a symbolic level, and uh, you know can describe problems like um, should I grasp this object or manipulate this object to achieve a goal or to build a tower or things like mm -hmm. that do I first have to open a door before I get an object and all these kind of things um, so we use these models and planning as inference in these kind of models uh, which is really fast uh, really because it's on a symbolic level very fast compared to the, all the low level motion um, stuff mm -hmm. so um, in those cases what is what you call interrupts or unexpected events or things like that um, which would just uh, require to sort of redo the whole inference mm -hmm. be which because it's on a symbolic level is really very quick mm -hmm. so on I don't know currently in practice in robotics I'd say um, the inference is so fast that uh, you, you just update online all, mm -hmm. all the time so okay so you're saying this will just be equalized out by by compute speed this is mm, you could put it like that yeah by just having the system to just update itself and and recompute the posterior um, whenever some new evidence comes in mm -hmm. right so then also at some point in, in your presentation, you, you gave a little scheme where you distinguished different variations of, of problem-solving problem, problem solving approaches, mm -hmm. um, like model-based versus model-free approach. Oh, that one. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. so, so what's that structure that you had exactly in mind there? How does it organize the different approaches that are around? Um, I didn't really... I didn't really think that there is like one structure which combines all these approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that, that diagram was just to to sort of give an overview of what what, what kind of approaches people follow in reinforcement mm -hmm. learning, right? So model-based, the path going over first learning transition models and model-free, just learning uh, value functions. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know Dyna, which combines the two in mm -hmm. one framework. Um, I don't know. So our own work is mostly... Actually, the, the work that we use in robotics, which I didn't talk much about today, is uh, really fully model-based. Mm -hmm. So uh, we always actually follow model-based approaches. And it's only um, in that, what I talked about today, in that more recent work, uh, that we came up with a model-free reinforcement learning exactly. algorithm, mm -hmm. which uh, I find interesting for other reasons. Uh, but in robotics, I must say I'm more a model-based uh, proponent. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why do you find that more, more interesting or relevant? Uh, in particular... 
um, for, for for the types of problems that we did in in relational reinforcement learning, where the state space is inherently um, exponential in the number of objects, so the state is described by all the relations between objects. Um, so if you have ten objects, uh, you know there is on, on the order of ten uh, squared binary relations between them. All of them can be can have a value. So um, your state space is say two two two. You know. Um, so the state space is exponential in, th in those cases, and uh, how do you do learning in these kinds of spaces? Mm -hmm. um, and and there is there is model free approach as well, uh, who sort of represent um, also the uh, the policy directly on some relational features, so first order logic features, and then use policy gradients to actually optimize them. Um, but but we think that uh, the generalization is actually much stronger if you try to learn uh, models from the experiences, mm -hmm. and the models in those cases are represented by stochastic relational rules, mm -hmm. um, almost a bit like strip, but they're stochastic and, and they're first order, um, and it's not our own work. We use that that work to learn these rules, mm -hmm. and uh, we find it fascinating how strongly they generalize. So, from mm -hmm. only a couple of experiences, uh, that something rolls when you push it, the robot generalizes uh, quite, I don't know, rationally. One could say, mm -hmm. well, I don't know, quite interestingly, oh, to other objects and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, it is what what I find interesting about model based approaches is the, the ability to generalize experience. Mm -hmm. And, but the problem of model-based, of course, is, well, now you have that nice model, but how do you translate it to actions? Uh, and this is where then the planning as inference uh, right, comes Right, exactly. In. But to what extent are these models uh, actively acquired? Uh, nice work. So the, the, the last two years or so, we've been um, actually investigating a lot in, in active exploration or active learning. So where uh, systems should you know, decide on actions that maximize information gain. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's the fear of active learning in, in machine learning, right? Um, so one of the questions we had is how can we uh, sort of transfer these methods, the existing methods, on, on the relational for relational reinforcement learning? Mm -hmm. and, and that requires that, mm, you know, estimating information gain or estimating your uncertainty of predictions as it is done in, in also implicitly in RMAX or the Bayesian exploration bonus, uh, how to do the same thing with the stochastic rules. Mm -hmm. And we did that. We call this relational uh, relational exploration, mm -hmm. and that means that you know if 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 the robot has observed a, a, a ball rolling, a, a green ball rolling, and then a blue ball rolling, then it it maybe would not be interested some anymore in another yellow ball, but instead uh, try to roll something which looks different to balls, mm -hmm. right? So. Um, Absolutely. So the, these are exploration strategies that we investigated and which are really important in these exponential state spaces mm -hmm. to, to lead to efficient learning. Right. So, so, but for you, the main difference is that you say, look, if, the, if this, this state space gets too large, you just need, need a better strategy to, to map it. And, and that's an active, active learning but, or the, the, an active exploration component. Mm -hmm. While um, intrinsically, <laughs> intrinsically, you don't need to change your whole approach. It's just the way how you explore that state space. Mm, I, I agree. So intrinsically, uh, it's a funny choice of word because of intrinsic motivation, but um, uh, it's the same principle. So it's still the same principle of uh, maximizing information gain, uh, which is approximated as it is in RMAX and our vision exploration bonus. Um, what what is necessary is to transfer that same intrinsic principle to other types of representations Namely, those relational representations or these stochastic right. rules we had. Would you think this game would change a lot when I would impose a, a memory capacity constraint? Um, don't know. Um, you mean the, explore, the, the exploration strategy would change? Yeah, or or the model, the whole model construction phase. Uh, why well, in the model construction, there is a regularization penalizing mm -hmm. size of the model. Um, so uh, putting a hard limit on mm -hmm. the model sometimes can be even shown to be sort of dual to actually regularization. But um, yeah, I'm not sure if it mm -hmm. would change. No, why this is interesting to me is look, I, I try to understand how the brain works, mm -hmm. and 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 the brain just doesn't have these luxuries of of you know infinite memory, or infinitely fast uh, processing speeds and mm. so on. And so th this, of course, raises this issue that maybe the brain is operating in, in a part of, of problem-solving state space where we just are not really looking with our algorithms because we're not looking at the same constraints. Mm -hmm. So it's for that I'm asking, look, if I take a constraint, not as a memory capacity, 
would that change the game from from your perspective? Mm. Mm. I'd say I I'm I don't I I don't know if I can I don't say anything to that. I have the impression that the uh, that the kind of models that we learn are so small compared to the things that mm -hmm. you know humans really learn. Um, humans would have much more capacity than what our models that use these stochastic uh, mm -hmm. relational rules, for instance. Right. Um, actually, I find it sometimes quite surprising how much humans can memorize, mm -hmm. uh, children especially, mm -hmm. um, without actually abstracting, just as, as right. if they would just store it away before they actually uh, without later being on. programmed by you. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but so the other thing here is also, um, for instance, a lot of these methods that, that that are very advanced and you guys have a deep understanding of them, but they are very often predicated predicated on fairly strong assumptions. For instance, one thing that that I find always uh, often worrisome is that, for instance, people sort of very loosely say, "Well, okay, let's assume I have defined my state space, and 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 now on the basis of that, I'm going to show you." all sorts of properties of my of my algorithm or mm -hmm. I'm going to learn a model, I'm going to do problems mm -hmm. and so on. Isn't that assumption actually too strong? Isn't it, shouldn't we also think more about policy learning together with really the state mm. space acquisition from uh, experience? Yeah, um, totally agree. Um, yes, I, I totally agree. I mean, the, the question of where the representations comes from is, is absolutely fundamental. Um, maybe there is two, two well, ways to go about this. So the one is really um, having the ambition that the system should really invent its own notions of state, its own representations and everything from scratch, uh, which has been the ambition for some while, right, by researchers. Uh, and ideally even under partial observability and so forth. Um, which, uh, even myself, I was thinking about that. Uh, but, but more and more, I think this is very tough. Still, we should still continue trying, right? Um, the more I actually work with robotics, the more I have the impression that it might be worth um, before trying to invent arguments that can invent representations for you know all possible worlds, um, to actually understand that actually our world, our 3D world, is uh, quite special. Um, and it's special in the sense that it's 3D, there is physics, uh, a lot of things in our world are actually about uh, rigid bodies. Um, it's becoming now very robotics talk, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there, there's a lot of thing, uh, things about uh, really kinematics, so there's degrees of freedom in our environment that we can manipulate and so forth. Um, so our, our actually true world is very, very structured. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, um, why not as a simple step, because we're limited as researchers, as humans, uh, first try to understand you know, that, those particular structures that are inherent in our, in our world and think about what would be representations to actually hand, deal with those. Mm -hmm. So that's um, also a more robotics-like pragmatic approach. But, but it's, it's also uh, funny that, that you're sort of following a little bit your physics uh, uh, training or, or, or oh. intuitions again by saying, oh, no, l let's make the spherical cow, and then we, we start from there. I'm, uh, frankly, I'm not sure... I think it's the opposite in physics and training. I think the typical physicist would uh, go the first approach because he wants to be always general and mm -hmm. work in every possible world and derive optimal solutions in every possible world. Um, and in a sense, um, also machine learning and optimal control and MDPs, they do that, right? They, they define problems which are seemingly total generally mm -hmm. because um, you can describe everything as an MDP or a control sure. problem, right? Mm -hmm. And you can embed everything in a vector space, mm -hmm. which is sort of true. Um, but it might neglect the fact that the, the, the actual problems we are faced with are very structured. Mm -hmm. And, right. and uh, acknowledging that specific structure mm -hmm. is maybe uh, it's maybe less a theoretical physicist thing, but more really an engineering and, and mm -hmm. robotics. Okay. Uh, but do you thing. feel that there, are, that there are already solutions of that kind on the table? No. Um, looking more and more into robotics, I think that, um, uh, that there is... Uh, of course, there is engineering, that's how, the, 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 which means that uh, the, the people who program, the roboticists, they have these concepts and these specific representations and understanding of kinematics mm -hmm. of worlds and so forth. And from their understanding, then program the robot to deal with that. But I do not have the, the impression that um, the, the machines themselves, so mm -hmm. let's say the inference mechanism in the models that, I'm, that I talked about today, uh, that they would actually do inferences about true fiscal um, mm -hmm. situations. Right. Or that we would have inference machines which could do inferences about 
uh, what is the stable physical situation, like probabilistic inference mm -hmm. over that, or where might be a degree of freedom in, in the world. Um, this is so doing inferences in this space is still so structured that I that I think we do not yet know how we could do probabilistic inference in those spaces. Mm -hmm. Right. So what would be a good benchmark for these kinds of models? Mm. Hmm. Um, okay, so th there is the old uh, Köhler, um, Wolfgang Köhler, right? He, mm -hmm. he was a um, what was he? Psychologist, mm -hmm. beginning of the 20th century, uh, did these these experiments with, with monkeys. Chimpanzees, uh, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I, I loved them on um, on which island? I forgot. Um, uh, so he has this book which is called Intelligence Tests of Apes, something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and in, in these books, he describes actually very nice um, behaviors, which I would call really goal-directed behaviors. Mm -hmm. And one of these behaviors is where um, there is a banana at the ceiling and the robot is trying to, to get it, uh, but it's too high. No, it's so a chimpanzee who tries to get it, not, not a robot. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see where I'm getting at, right? <laughs> yeah, these right, would be yeah. tests. Uh, so mm. yeah, the, the ape wants to get it to high. Mm. He jumps and for five minutes doesn't doesn't mm -hmm. achieve it. Uh, gets sort of depressed. At least that's um, the storytelling that um, Köhler actually does in the book. Sits in the corner, uh, sort of depressed for a while, um, and then suddenly uh, points his eyes towards the banana and then points his eyes uh, at the box in the corner mm -hmm. and then again at the banana and the, and the box and then jumps up, mm -hmm. grabs the box, goes on top of the box and, and gets it. Um, and I, I wish, you know, robots could do that. Okay. And I, yeah. I think if I would be a psychologist or so, I would be very interested to th to actually model what's going on in that head mm -hmm. of the sure. of the mm. of the of the um, monkey, because I think he he did inference uh, in a very structured way, if, uh, inference about our physical mm -hmm. world. He right. did inference about mm -hmm. let me pull that box here and mm -hmm. get on top of that, yeah, exactly. and and. It's it's exploiting physics mm -hmm. very very much. Yeah. Yeah, we had a beautiful lecture on this last week by Alex uh, Kachelnik, uh -huh. exactly on, on on this famous experiment by Curler with also many other experiments in oh, the domain. Great. So you you would you would follow you would stick to such a benchmark. You'd be happy with that. Absolutely. If the That's robots great. would do that, I'd uh, I'd be um, very done. good. But now I don't know if you, uh, whether you guys ever apply your own methods in an autobiographical way because you could also say, look, every machine learning person is trying to optimize their own policy in this complex world. Mm. And um, in some sense, we also would like to make statements about biological systems, about physical, psychological systems, and so on, using these methods. But there might be a possibility that, that of course, you guys have optimized yourself in some sort of local minima in this larger space of all possible policies and problem-solving solutions, that actually the, the links with, with, with natural systems has gotten lost. Mm. Okay? So... Where do you stand on that? Uh, to what extent also the, the models we now I mean, very superficially discussed now in this in this interview, I mean, where is really the leverage, right? Because for instance, we all know that the, the big hype that has been going around and the big enthusiasm and hope for the last 30 years on these kinds of methods. And in some sense, when we look back, we can also, well, yeah, okay, it kept a lot of people busy. That's all very positive. But did we really sort of make a huge step forward in understanding biological systems or psychological systems, and there it's not so clear. Right? Yeah, um, I, I agree that there is not necessarily always links to the bio uh, biological system um, of the methods. And um, I would even claim that's not... Um, that's very often not the goal, to keep mm -hmm. these links to the, you know, to the biological paradigm. Um, well, why not? I mean, it can be one goal for some people, but uh, right, uh, it's also a feasible. I mean, um, an engineering goal really to just design systems which do things good in a, mm -hmm. in a good way and optimize something or whatever. Um, but let me put it the other way. I think, I think in order to understand living systems, it is um, also a good idea to 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 understand uh, our world, our environment, mm -hmm. and to understand what it means to behave. Um, or to, to organize behavior in that environment. Mm -hmm. um, totally, just on, on that level, uh, like I tend to say functional also, without caring for the substrate, without caring for, um, I don't know, the, the mm -hmm. constraints, the concrete biological mm -hmm. constraints that there are, but just to understand what is actually the structure of problems that things in the world are mm -hmm. being faced with, right. no matter if these are robots or not, uh, mm -hmm. or other systems. Mm -hmm. And I think that, the, that uh, you know, the engineering methods or robotics can contribute on that side, and uh, on I also think that um, 
Well, it's important to understand actually the, the, the problems when you then would go back and ask how could biological systems mm -hmm. actually face these problems. So it's a bit more a normative um, perspective then, right? Like, uh, like this is how, um, what the system should do. Um, uh, should do is even too much. Uh, what the system is confronted with. Mm -hmm. Understand okay. the structure of w what it is mm -hmm. confronted with. Right. Really. But now, if we look at nature or, or psychology, we, we might see that actually notions of optimality might not hold so, so well, right? Like hmm. human decision-making is in many occasions suboptimal. Hmm. Uh, I'm here wasting your time and you're still being polite. So that would, you could also consider that suboptimal, <laughs> right? So, so uh, in, in the face of, let's say, psychological reality and behavioral reality, um, how do these notions of optimality then actually hold up to that? Hmm. Optimality. So I have a very pragmatic, actually, relation to optimality mm. um, I think uh, a, a, a many empirical things can be described as if they would adhere optimality principles and, and, and that's it's a misunderstanding to actually uh, say that this had, would have any meaning like uh, if, it, if it wants to be optimal or whatever uh, let me take an example I mean the trajectory of a, of, of a particle in physics right you can you can say it minimizes action mm -hmm. um, or um, it, if, I don't know some kind of field in physics it behaves as if it would minimize an energy mm -hmm. uh, th that energy or that action this is only a scientific concept that mm -hmm. we scientists have devised to describe the actual like mm -hmm. system there right so um, uh, by, by which I'm saying um, cost functions or optimality objectives like these things um, these are just uh, designed by us scientists to describe systems in the world it's mm -hmm. just a means to describe systems mm -hmm. in the world to say the system behaves as if it is optimal so I, I think it's a misunderstanding to, to really think that we believe machines must be optimal mm -hmm. it's just a, a scientific tool to describe them as being optimal yeah, but, but with respect to some arbitrary cost functions but for instance you know humans uh, have many biases in their decision making, right? And yeah. there's some beautiful books written about that. Uh, one might be, for instance, many people in gambling believe they have much more control over the outcome of, of a, yeah. a bet than they really have. Yeah. So there you see, in psychological reality, you might not be able to really optimize so cleanly no. on some goal function, no. even though that is really at the core of the methods that, that you're developing. No, I think, um, and, and this is almost a trivial statement, that any behavior can be described as being optimal. It's just a question of optimal with respect to what. So and and um, I mean, I mean this, and I, I mean it's it's no more statement when I'm when I'm saying uh, I'm interested in in describing algorithms that can do optimal uh, optimal things. It's only uh, that I that I think. Uh, that th this is an abstraction of how to describe behavior. I think even what people call sub-rational behavior or limited behavior, of course you can describe it as being optimal mm -hmm. with respect to something, uh, some other objective. Uh, okay, but then, then of course, there's another risk that's looming, another challenge, that I could say, yeah, but in, then, in that case, your method is super powerful because it can never fail. So then what do we learn? Well... Uh, the thing is that you now sort of shifted your uh, level of scientific description. You know, you do not describe behavior, phenomena, phenomena directly anymore mm -hmm. in a direct representation in terms of describing the policy. But you described, you shifted your level of scientific description to the level of describing what they optimize. Mm -hmm. And at first sight, it's nothing more than just a shift. You didn't gain anything by mm -hmm. that. Uh, but the potential, what you could gain is that this other description is more compact. Mm -hmm. And right. that's really the only scientific gain of that, that mm -hmm. you can uh, describe things more compactly. Mm -hmm. And this is you know, how it was in physics always. Mm -hmm. The reason why you would want to describe uh, particles as minimizing action, so the trajectory of particles, or so, is because it's a very concise um, description of what, what's happening. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, alternatively, you could just write down for every possible thing what happened. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah, but right. it's more concise mm -hmm. to describe it like that. Same with, um, I mean, behavior, uh, like human motion, um, saying that human motion, as in Walpert's work, behaves as if it would be stochastically optimal control. Mm. Um, don't overstate this. It's not meaning that they that they want, want to optimize it mm. or so. Uh, it's just a statement that you can shift your scientific description of human behavior onto an abstraction uh, where uh, where you say the behavior, the motion is as if it would minimize mm -hmm. that objective function. Right. It's just a shift of description, nothing more. And a description of it, right? Right. Yeah. The hope would be that it's so concise that, for instance, with robots, um, it's easier to, um, to um, specify 
or be creative in saying what they might want to optimize mm -hmm. uh, and then derive behavior from that uh, rather than programming behavior directly. Mm -hmm. It's a shift of programming language almost, if you want right. to say. Mm -hmm. Now we're programming uh, objective functions mm -hmm. instead of, of policies directly. Right, exactly. So Mark, that, so you, you're you're deeply involved in, in, in developing these sort of also new perspectives on, on problem solving and machine learning, which also have quite some impact. But so given this experience, what would you see as Mark's law for us to <laughs> understand reality? Uh, I have no idea. Um, Mark's law, uh, acknowledge the structure. I don't know. It's and That's an important thing, which... I. Sometimes I don't feel myself that I that, that my own research is makes so much progress with that. But actually, I think this would be the most important thing: acknowledge uh, really the structure of the problems, mm -hmm. and and be, because, yeah, that that's important. Right. And uh, last point. So five years from now, I'm going to come visit you wherever you are, maybe Stuttgart, and I'm going to confront you with a prediction you're going to make today. Where I'm going to say, "Look, Mark, you predicted to me today or five years back that the following would happen." Now. Did it really go, come out like that? Was your prediction really supported? What's his prediction you would like to make today? <laughs> um, that you can test me in five years, right? <laughs> um, um, well, so our goal actually is, and I usually say to my students in five years, uh, as a point of motivation, and that we would have that robot that um, autonomously ex explores its environment and discovers all degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, that sounds like a simple statement initially, but if you, if you look around the room right now and think about all degrees of freedom in that room, kinematic ones, right? There's a lot. Mm -hmm. And in order to discover them, the robot would have to start pushing, kicking, letting fall, letting drop, um, I don't know, um, everything, grasping all of these things and, and shake it and see if something moves. And mm -hmm. that's something I would want to... Right. Okay, I'll come and see if the robot tore down your lab five years from now. Yeah. So Mark Toussaint, thank you very much for this conversation. Welcome, thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.